Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Brittany, but not for long. (laughs) Sounds like she's going to kill me or something. You're kicked off the show, Brittany. Just for today. Okay. It's okay. You'll be okay. Today, we're going to have a special collaboration with my friend Taniola Ogunro, who also has endometriosis and who is also the host of the podcast, Not Defined by Endo. Okay, for Tenny, I guess I will get off the show for one episode. You can be back next week, Brittany. Okay. <laughs> so do I have your permission to talk about how great Tenny is right now? Absolutely. Or do I have to talk about how great you are first? No, she's... Do I have to soothe the ego? <laughs> she's amazing, and I will allow all space for Tenny, and I will leave the podcast for now. <laughs> okay, we don't have to leave yet. Not until she comes <laughs> okay, on. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> so if you haven't listened to Tenny's podcast then we highly recommend it. Brittany and I love her podcast, and she has had incredible guests on her show, which includes such legends as Nancy Peterson from Nancy's <gasps> Nook. Legend. Iris Orbuck and Amy Stein, who are the authors of the book Beating Endo. And then she's had on other excision specialists, nutritionists, experts in pelvic floor therapy, pain specialists, endo patients living with the disease, and more. Tenny is incredibly smart. You're smart too, Brittany. You're smart too. So are you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But Tenny is incredibly smart. It's okay, Brittany. It's okay. (laughs) I feel bad for replacing me with Tenny. (laughs) He's like, why aren't I on the show today? You are on the show right now, Brittany. But then you're going to go bye bye. Then I'm going to leave. I'm going to (laughs) kick off. So Tenny is incredibly smart. And I have learned a lot from her podcast, and it is very well rounded. So, how did you and Tenny connect, Amy? Well, as all good friendships start, it began on Instagram. We connected because we both have a podcast and we share tips with each other. And then, of course, since we both have endometriosis, we end up talking about endo and we just hit it off and became friends. And she's just very sweet and intelligent. It's okay, Brittany, you're intelligent too. And I'd have to keep. I'm not sweet. (laughs) (laughs) What? Um, Debatable. Oh, it's okay. I'm sour. You're funny too, Brittany. Okay. You're ready too. <laughs> Poor Brittany. <laughs> so anyways, Tenny and I were talking that we thought it would be really fun and a special treat to collaborate and research and produce an episode together. So in today's episode with Tenny, we are going to discuss the topic of racial bias in healthcare, which is a topic that has been on both of our minds. So this episode is going to air on both our podcast and also on Tenny's podcast. So if you want, go find your podcast and listen again. Go listen twice. But it'll be the same episode with a different intro done by Tenny. 
So it's not the same episode. It is the <laughs> Well, once Teddy and I come on, it will be the same. I'm so excited to hear today's episode. I'm more than happy to leave you and Tenny to have this great friendship moment and a great conversation that we all feel really strongly about, but not too much fun and not too much friendship. Also, I just want to point out that my sound quality will be lower than normal and than it is right now. And that's because Tenny is in the UK. So my voice crossing the internet cables under the ocean seemed to have affected my sound quality. No way. Well, without further ado, I will be back next week to continue our series with Amy on the sex and gender bias. So let's welcome sweet, wonderful Tenny to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy, and it's so great to be here. So before we start the topic today, I just wanted to mention right off the bat that I am not a person of color. I am a white person. I am from the United States. And I have not experienced racism, and I have had white privilege in all areas of my life, including when it comes to healthcare. By no means am I an authority on this topic, and nor do I think that I am. Today, I'm here with Tenny to speak about racism and bias on a factual level, rather than from personal experience, nor will I speak for anyone else's personal experience. Hi, everyone. I'm Tenny, and I'm so glad to be here today. For everyone listening, I'm a person of color. I'm Black African from Nigeria, and I moved to the UK in 2010. So I and my family know what it feels like to be judged or treated unfairly simply due to the color of our skin. As Amy has said, today is just about sharing what we see as the barriers to care and how it affects people of color in more ways than many realize. We want to mention that we have put together a list of the resources used for this episode on my website, notdefinedbyendo.com, and also on Amy's website at in16years.com. There you'll find articles, videos, and books on the subject of racism in medicine by Black Voices. Additionally, we have put links to Black, Indigenous, and people of color with endometriosis who are doing incredible work, advocating for endometriosis, speaking about their experiences, and bringing light to how racism affects treatment and quality of life. We really encourage you to follow their platforms and to learn directly from their voices. The first thing I want to talk about today is how endometriosis used to be considered a white woman's disease. Sometimes we think of the racial bias in healthcare as the treatment of a medical professional towards a person of color, but it runs so much deeper than this. And this isn't just with endometriosis, you know. Many diseases were originally thought to be more prevalent in white people and not so common in people of color. So Tenny, why was that? Well, for endo, for example, it was considered a white woman's disease in the 70s and I think up to the 90s. But the reason that this disease was wrongly thought to be more prevalent in white women is probably because, first of all, white women had better access to healthcare, better access to resources, and they could see several doctors to actually get a diagnosis. 
Another reason is that endometriosis symptoms have been historically misdiagnosed as fibroids or PID, which is pelvic inflammatory disease in black patients. But today we're letting people know that it is not a white woman's disease. It doesn't care about your race or color. Endometriosis can affect anyone. I think this is so important to point out that any person who is biologically female can have endometriosis. And I think as barriers of access to care break down, we are seeing that people of all racial backgrounds are being diagnosed with endometriosis. And yet, unfortunately, some websites are not updated and they still list being white as one of the risk factors of this disease. And this is really problematic because by having this incorrect information on there, it can lead people who aren't white but who do have the symptoms of endometriosis to think that they probably have something different and that they don't have endometriosis. Or maybe their doctor could think this. So then what happens? They get steered in the wrong direction and they may take longer to be diagnosed with endometriosis or they may be misdiagnosed. Like you said, Tenny, Black women may be told that their pain is from fibroids, which is more common in Black women. And then this turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. So less Black women get diagnosed with endometriosis. So then it just keeps perpetuating this idea that it's not as common in them. That is so true, Amy. An endometriosis patients already go through a lot. I mean, it takes seven to 10 years on average to get diagnosed. Racial bias is just one of the many barriers that we face to care. Because even when we are aware that we have endo, and even when we are diagnosed, these barriers to care still present themselves. So things like religion, culture, insurance, even socioeconomic situations, all of these things are barriers to care that endometriosis patients have to overcome in order to get care. Honestly, it is just terrible how many barriers to care that there are. And bias is one of the most detrimental and undercutting barriers. So today we're going to talk about bias. It's helpful, I think, to define what bias is. Bias, as described in the dictionary, is, quote, a strong inclination of the mind or a preconceived opinion about something or someone, end quote. So bias could be in favor of or against something. And bias often shows up in the forms of stereotypes or prejudices. Most people think of bias as outright or explicit. But did you know that what can sometimes be more dangerous than outright bias is implicit bias? This is bias that takes place outside of conscious thoughts or awareness. And this means that it is difficult to consciously acknowledge or control. To be honest with you, Amy, all of us have implicit bias. And in fact, there is a test online called the Implicit Association Test, which any individual can take. And this test has been used in several studies to test the race biases in healthcare professionals. These studies suggest that doctors hold the same level of implicit bias as the wider population. 
So it shows that even doctors who self-rated themselves to be fair, to be kind, to be just, with no self-reported bias or preference towards any race, can also have implicit bias. That is really important to make that distinction because white culture has associated racism with an extreme act. Certain words only or doing an intentionally cruel act against an individual. Recently, I've been reading the book, So You Want to Talk About Race. And I've been learning that the definition that many of us have about racism needs to be expanded. You can be a kind, caring, compassionate, gentle, altruistic person, and you can still hold racial bias on a subconscious level without even realizing it. You can have no ill intentions towards a person of color, and you can believe that they should be treated equally, and you can still be complicit in racism because, unfortunately, it is systemic and it is institutionalized within our society. White people, including myself, we all have racial bias due to having been socialized in this society that is embedded with racism. If we can understand that as white people, that we all play a role by being part of a racial group that holds the institutional power, and if we can understand that having a racial bias doesn't mean that we are bad people, then we can move past wondering if we have racial bias or trying to defend against our racial bias, and we can introspectively ask ourselves, Where does my racial bias show up in my life? How can I change this? And to bring this back home to endometriosis and to healthcare and to talk more specifically about doctors, I recently read a really interesting book and it was called Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Healthcare. And it's by Dana Matthews. So Miss Matthews, she's a Black woman who is a lawyer, and she explains that doctors are often trained to recognize patterns and to use generalizations about a person's symptoms in order to quickly and correctly diagnose them. But unfortunately, this ability to quote-unquote sort patterns is also involved in implicit bias. When a patient walks into their office, in the doctor's subconscious mind, they quickly put together generalizations about that person. And so while that is really helpful to quickly diagnose symptoms, it's not good by any means for implicit bias. And in fact, it can feed into implicit bias. So to give an example, Let's say that a black patient walks into the doctor's office. Well, in the doctor's subconscious mind, they may recall TV images, news articles, previous experiences with black patients, and any and all information. And so all of this is happening at a subconscious level and within seconds. And so they arrive at assumptions about that person which may or may not be correct. I think many of us are aware that this commonly happens with appearance, and that might be skin color, certain clothing, or even hairstyles. 
based on something about the patient's appearance, the medical professional might assume that the patient before them has a certain education level or a certain social economic level. Then this stereotype can affect how the medical professional treats the patient. I actually have a personal example. So a few months ago, I had to go to the hospital to get my hormonal injection. I was to be on this medication for three months and it was time to get the third injection. When I got to the hospital, it turned out that the nurse who was to administer this injection actually had no clue about my appointment or anything about the medication because there had somehow been poor communication between my consultant and the nurses. Now, you would expect that the nurse would apologize for the mix-up and try to figure out what was going on, right? Wrong. Her first reaction was hostile, very abrupt, and so dismissive. She seemed to think that I was in the wrong, and I got the distinct impression that she immediately thought the mix-up was my fault or that I was not intelligent enough to come for the right appointment. On reading her attitude, I simply took a deep breath, like I do when I'm stressed, and I began to explain my treatment plan. I used the medical name of my injection. I explained the exact reason why this was my treatment plan. And I even threw in some fancy words just to make it clear to her that I knew what I was talking about. Honestly, I saw a complete change in her attitude. And by the end of the appointment, she actually apologized for the mix-up. My only explanation for her initial abruptness and outright meanness was that she had prejudged me right from when I came in the door. I wonder, did she look at the color of my skin and assume I wasn't educated or intelligent enough? That is a terrible experience. I am really glad that she apologized to you. And I hope that she can use that realization to further examine the way that she treats patients. And if she could even ask herself, did I treat this patient this way because of her appearance? Did I treat this patient this way because she's black? Because I thought that she was uninformed? I mean, listening to that story that you just told, Here's the thing. Even if you weren't aware of your treatment plan, right? Like even if you had showed up on the wrong day or you didn't know your medicine's name, the nurse had no right to treat you like that. First of all, it's insulting for her to act like you don't know what you're talking about or that you're not intelligent. No one should be treated with disrespect, especially by a medical professional. Whether or not they arrive up to the appointment on the wrong day or they don't know their care. It's not like you were seeking painkillers, right? Like you showed up at the hospital looking for your monthly hormone injection. And for her to dismiss you, it's ridiculous. It's terrible. It's out of line. It's disrespectful. It's insulting. And it shouldn't have happened. Yes, it was absolutely awful. And funny that you mentioned painkillers. Because a black friend of mine has also mentioned to me that a doctor told her that, in quotes, she just likes drugs when she asked for painkillers to deal with her flares. 
I mean, can you imagine that? I, it's just like, it just blows my mind. I mean, okay, first of all, who doesn't like drugs when they're in the middle of an endometriosis flare <laughs> and they're in pain, right? Like painkillers are a lifesaver for so many of us with chronic and acute pain. And the doctor has no right to assume that, nor to say that. How unprofessional. Why do you think that is, that the doctor spoke to her that way? Well, perhaps because of stereotypes portrayed in the media, that Black people are more prone to drug abuse or that they exaggerate their pain. There are so many misconceptions among doctors that Black people have thicker skin or less nerve endings than white people. Like we can take so much pain. So all of this can lead to undertreating the pain of black people, dismissing it, or the doctor rating the patient to be in less pain than they claim. You just brought up something really important. And I, so I just want to repeat about these false misconceptions that many doctors have. The belief that black people have thicker skin than white people or the belief that black people have less nerve endings than white people. So actually there was a study in 2016 and half of the medical trainees surveyed had one of these false beliefs. Half of them. Wow, that is crazy. I knew that, you know, those misconceptions existed, but just seeing that half of the people surveyed had those false beliefs is just, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's the prevalence of these beliefs is unreal. And these myths, because that's what they are, they're false beliefs, they're myths about how Black people feel less pain. This actually began in the age of slavery in the United States as another way to dehumanize Black people. It is ridiculous that these ideas are so prevalent. And I think what it shows is that we absolutely need better education among doctors to let go of these dangerous falsehoods that are hurting Black people, that are hurting the patients when they try to seek legitimate care. And in my own opinion, this narrative, these falsehoods, these myths, they just exist in order to blame the patient. Saying that the black patient has thicker skin or is more prone to drug abuse is just another example of blaming the patient. Doctors have to realize that they are in a position of authority. This is why education is so important. We go to these doctors because we need help. We need help with our health. And then to get dismissed, to get insulted and gaslighted, and in the end not getting the treatment you need, this has to change. Doctors need to realize that with great power comes great responsibility. They are the ones that have to prescribe the medicine. The doctor is the one to approve the treatments. The doctor is the one to write a referral to a specialist. So while we as patients can play a part in our healthcare, with our diet and our lifestyle, with educating ourselves, 
and with compliance to treatment. There is only so much we can do without help from our medical professionals. I mean, we can't operate on ourselves, can we? Neither can we know pharmacology. So this leaves us in our doctor's hands. You just made me think of a really great example that I read in the book that I mentioned previously, in the book Just Medicine. And Miss Matthews talks about kidney failure. And she talks about how the doctor is the one to make recommendations to the patient with kidney failure if they're going to either go on the transplant list or they're going to continue with dialysis without getting a transplant. So the surgery for a transplant is really difficult. And because of that, some doctors may not recommend transplant surgery to patients if they don't believe that the patients would be compliant with the follow-up care. Or, for example, if they don't believe that the patients have a support system in place for recovery. Other doctors might not mention the possibility of a transplant if they don't think that the patient has the funds to pay for the surgery. But here's the question. Shouldn't the doctor be offering the option of a kidney transplant to all the patients and letting the patient make their own decision? Why are some doctors only offering the transplant surgery to patients that the doctor thinks fits their criteria? And how are these doctors deciding if the patient will or won't be compliant with follow-up care? or if the patient has the funds, or if they have a support system. Unfortunately, oftentimes assumptions are made, and racial bias can play a huge role in these assumptions. Who is the doctor to make judgments or preconceived notions about patients? We all have equal right to hear all of the options. The doctor can make recommendations that they think would be fitting for us, but ultimately, we should be able to hear all of the options and then make our individual choice about what treatment plan we want. So you know that research actually showed that in the U.S., physicians rated their white patients more likely to improve than their black counterparts simply because they believed that their Black patients were less likely to take responsibility for their health and to follow treatment plans. It's just so unbelievable, isn't it? Like who, again, who is the doctor to make these judgments or preconceived notions about patients? I mean, is it any wonder that African-American women are three times more likely to die due to pregnancy-related causes than white women, or that the African-American infant mortality rate is actually twice that of white babies. Even for COVID, Black people have been shown to be more likely to die from COVID than white people. Why, Amy? Why? Honestly, that these statistics and these realities, they're sickening. They shouldn't be happening. And I think what it shows concretely is that the racial bias is truly affecting people's lives. It's truly affecting people's health. And ultimately, it is killing Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And that is unacceptable. 
for anyone who cares, one thing you always have to realize is that white people already have a head start. They've got the privilege. Black and minority groups are running behind and there is so much work to be done to level the playing field. I know we're talking about research done in the US and also in the UK, but there is so much work that needs to be done worldwide. Aside from speaking about bias in healthcare, I believe that there are so many other factors like we've spoken about today. Unequal access to health is one of the first issues I think we have to solve. Black and minority ethnic groups face barriers to access, and some of them are not even aware of services that are available. Some of them struggle with having to deal with so many doctors rather than one, and this means that there is no continuity of care. Patients of any race that live in rural areas or away from large hospitals may not even be able to see a gynecologist and they have to be treated at local clinics where doctors rotate each week. To be honest, the truth is that if black and minority groups are less educated, if they live in poor neighborhoods, or if they don't have high enough incomes, then it is still a result of the racial discrimination that they have endured and continue to endure. These socioeconomic gaps continue to penetrate healthcare and they even impact what kinds of doctors that these people are able to have access to. I was looking at some research and I actually found that the average American family spends 11% of their annual household income on healthcare. And this includes things such as prescription drugs, office visit copays, and so on, while it's 20% of the average household income for Black Americans. So this is saying that generally black Americans are paying more for healthcare, which is ridiculous considering that on average, they have a lower salary due to income inequality. Until recently, I had not realized how systemic racism is and how it affects all aspects of society. And I've been working on unpacking my white privilege And I'm seeing that having white privilege or not having white privilege plays such a huge role in our lives, be that in our opportunities, our education, our access to healthcare, our housing, our income. I wanted to mention something else that can contribute to the inequality of healthcare, and that's communication. I really think that doctors should be asking themselves if they have a negative bias towards patients who don't communicate fluently. For example, in the United States or in the UK, there are people who have immigrated who don't speak English as a first language, and they're more likely to have issues communicating due to language barriers or even accents. Doctors might look down on these patients and act like they're not intelligent. And I mention this because I've actually seen this firsthand when accompanying my boyfriend to the doctor. So he's Mexican and he's still learning English. But we had an experience with one doctor where this doctor acted like he was 10 years old and not a full grown, competent adult. 
And on a broader level, this may even happen with native speakers who come from different areas of the country than the doctor. So via stereotyping, the doctor might hear their way of speaking and then associate that way of speaking or that accent with a low education or a lower social economic status. And then once again, that can influence the way that the doctor prescribes care. Oh, I'm so sorry about the experience of your boyfriend with that doctor. Yeah, in the end, he didn't want to go back to the doctor because he had a bad experience. So that's why I actually accompanied him to the doctor the second time. And then I saw that experience with my own eyes. Having these bad experiences with the doctor can then prevent the patient from wanting to return to get follow-up care, which I can understand because I've had my own experiences with the doctor dismissing my pain, which for a while made me feel like I you know, didn't want to go to the doctor, didn't want to open up and didn't want to advocate for myself because I wasn't going to be believed. So the doctor and the way the doctor treats us, it not only can it affect our treatment plan or what they prescribe, but it, it can affect the way that we, the comfort level that we have when we go to the doctor. Oh my goodness, that is so true. I think doctors are not aware of how their attitude or how their actions affect us. And I think self-reflection on the part of the doctor is so important. They need to become aware of their bias. And seeing how they can counter this bias is one of the keys to dismantling it in our healthcare system. We all have implicit bias. So if doctors want to bring change, they need to actively look into themselves and make these changes. They need to look at themselves from the outside in. Is my treatment plan being affected by any biases I might have? Would I give this same treatment to a white person or to someone that's richer or someone with a higher socioeconomic status? Yes. I think those are really excellent questions that the doctor just took a few minutes to ask themselves during or after every visit. It could really improve the quality of care. Awareness of the implicit bias is key. I also think that it's all interconnected and that there is so much wrong with our current medical system. For example, we all know that there is a huge problem with the pressure put on doctors to speed through their patients, right? I mean, think about it. Most doctors nowadays, they have packed schedules with very little time allotted to the patient. So then the doctor might really need to rely on that patterning and stereotyping that I mentioned before to be able to quickly diagnose the symptoms. This is part of the job. And this helps them, but the detrimental aspect of this is how quickly they may then apply biases to the patient without even knowing it. And when doctors are in a rush and they're under that intense pressure, it's really hard to be reflective. If they barely have time to see the patient and diagnose the patient, then it's really hard for them to also reflect on the attitudes that they held. And so I just want to be clear, I'm not making any excuses here. I definitely think that doctors need more awareness, but I also think that the whole system is broken and that the whole system needs to be revamped. If the system could change, first of all, it would provide better care because patients could have more time with the doctors. 
And second, it could better set up the doctors to give them that time and space to examine their unconscious assumptions and then better support the patient before them. I think doctors being so busy that it seems like they don't have enough time for their patients is one of the issues that need to be addressed. I have had surgery and woke up and not found my doctor. Using endometriosis as an example, many of us actually wake up from surgery and find that we don't know what happened in the surgery. We don't know what they found. We don't know what they did. And we're just aching all over. And it feels like the doctor did not have enough time just to simply tell us, you know, what was wrong with us and how they fixed us. So I think that is one of the issues that need to be sorted out somehow. Yeah, I remember when I woke up from surgery and uh, the doctor wasn't there, but the nurse told me that the doctor would go over everything in my two-week post-op appointment. (laughs) I was like, I have to wait two weeks to find out what happened? Oh, yours was two weeks. Mine was two months. (laughs) Oh, what? Two months? Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. Wow. It took two months to know exactly what had happened. So yeah. (laughs) Wow. That is a lot of time. And that just like, since we just mentioned surgery, it it just made me think of another example of a really broken system is insurance hurdles. As we know, it can be difficult to access excision surgery for many people, not just because there are so few excision surgeons worldwide and because of the location that, you know, if you don't live close to an excision surgeon or there may not even be an excision surgeon in your country, but even if you do have the luck to have an excision surgeon that is within your vicinity that you would be able to drive or even fly to, oftentimes excision surgery is not covered by insurance. The insurance deems it out of network or it doesn't deem it necessary for the patient. And this is a huge barrier of access to care for so many of us. And even excision surgery aside, just talking about like general medical care, at least here in the United States, we have different types of insurance. So we have private insurance, then we have Medicaid, which is a state and federal insurance program for people of low income. And then you can have no insurance. So I have a statistic here, and it is that as of 2018, the rate of African-Americans without insurance was 9.7%, while the rate of white Americans without insurance was 5.4%. The rate for African Americans was almost double the rate that we have among white people. So, not having insurance here in the United States, I think we have fame, which is not a good fame, for the drastic costs of care here in the United States. I mean, not having insurance, it can cost tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that can prevent the majority of people of not getting the care that they need at all. You know, and even with insurance, costs can be really high depending on your deductible, your animal out-of-pocket maximum. Insurance coverage varies between individuals. So we might have an insurance that allows us to go get a second or a third or a fourth opinion Our insurance might allow us to try a medicine, and if that doesn't work, try a different medicine. But there are other insurances 
that don't allow you to do this. They don't allow you to hop around doctors. They require that all treatments get pre-certified. They require if you want to have surgery, you have to try XYZ drug first, even though that's not what you want for your treatment plan, but that's what's required by the insurance. They might require you to get a referral for every specialist that you see. And so all of this can really hinder our care. And within this, I think this is another example of how systemic racism affects U.S. healthcare. Depending on our income level, depending on our job, and I mentioned the job because if you're not familiar, in the United States, oftentimes our insurance comes through our employer, and so that can vary drastically depending on our employer. But we all have different insurances here, or we have no insurance. So that affects our care, and it is all correlated together. Now that I've gone off on my insurance rant, I know that there are problems in other parts of the world, too. Like here in the United States, we often dream of universal health care, but I, that's not a perfect solution either. So I've heard in the UK that you might have to wait months for surgery or, well, as you just said, two months for a post-op appointment <laughs> or uh, you have to wait a really like months to see a specialist. Yes, yes, yes. The wait times of the NHS, so that's our National Health Service, are absolutely appalling. So I'm grateful that we've got free health care and the fact that you can go to your GP, you know, get a prescription for whatever is ailing you and then get your medication, which is heavily subsidized by the government. It's great. However, it can take up to a year to see specialists or even to get the proper treatment. So don't get me wrong, the NHS is great, but sometimes it feels like the GPs are just gatekeepers. So if they don't believe in your pain, if they have all of these biases, then good luck getting referred to a specialist. So it feels like here you have no choice of what specialist you're referred to. Sometimes you have no choice on what treatment plan you're being put on. And it's really hard to feel like you're able to make any decisions about your own health. So really what you're saying is that problems exist everywhere. Everywhere, Amy. <laughs> everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> the system is imperfect everywhere. I'm Nigerian, like I said before, and we also have several more barriers to care. One of the barriers is the cultural one. Most of us grew up being told that pain is normal. We're told, suck it up. It will get better after childbirth. Sometimes you are told that yours is just slightly worse than others, but come on, you can handle it. So you end up just keeping quiet about your pain. And then you feel shame for not being able to handle the pain. And I can tell you now that this surely prevents people from coming forward to speak about their pain. I think one of the other issues with places like Nigeria is that there's a lot of ignorance. I guess there's ignorance everywhere, but I think it has a lot to do with ignorance because sometimes I think that our mothers and their mothers before them truly didn't know. You know, they didn't know that using endometriosis, like I said, as an example, they didn't know that it wasn't normal. Everyone just got on with it. And here we are today. A friend of mine from Cameroon actually told me that his cousin has endometriosis. So he hasn't been diagnosed, but from all the symptoms I mentioned on the podcast, he knew. But guess what they told her was ailing her? 
she was possessed by a demon. Because of the religious background, that doesn't actually seem ridiculous. It's fitting to the culture, especially if people are unaware of the science or the medicine. I think we often forget or we're completely unaware of how much our life is influenced by our culture. You know, our culture teaches us ideas of how things should be. And this includes ideas about our bodies, our illnesses, and our treatment. In the United States, we may think that the idea of having pelvic pain being caused by a demon is way off base, or we may hear that and think that that's ridiculous. But in other cultures, and even in past times in our own culture, i.e., demonic possession and you're a witch, this explanation feels normal or, you know, in the past felt normal and fitting. And that's why awareness and education are so important. Awareness among friends, among partners, doctors, schools. Having education about these diseases is vital to getting diagnosed faster and getting proper treatment. Well, we know this with endometriosis. I mean, it's a disease that is riddled with myths and misconceptions, everything from the myth that it is caused by retrograde menstruation to the misinformation that Lupron can treat or reduce endometriosis lesions, which it can't. It can only treat your symptoms. It is symptom management only. Or the myth that a hysterectomy cures endometriosis. And all of this leads many people worldwide to receive inadequate treatment for their endometriosis, and they don't even know that they're receiving inadequate treatment. And it's unacceptable. I mean, we as patients shouldn't have to figure it out for ourselves. We're already fighting a disease. We're already sick. We're already in pain. And we should be able to trust the information that the doctor gives us. And yes, We have a responsibility to empower ourselves. But at the same time, the healthcare system and society has a responsibility to us as patients. You are so right about society having a responsibility in removing these barriers to health. So while we must do all we can, the systems in place that uphold these barriers must also be dismantled. A very interesting and I would say terrifying example I just remembered is the bias that was found recently in a major healthcare risk prediction algorithm. I think it served 200 million people in the US. You would expect that computer algorithms would lack the biases that exist in humans, right? Wrong again. This particular one was still biased because it relied on a faulty metric for determining need. So this metric didn't take into account that healthcare costs, race, and income are actually correlated. There were also about seven times more documents for the white patients than the black patients. So if there's a lack of diversity in the data criteria used, then certain populations will be underrepresented, and this in turn will lead to a bias. Seven times more documents for white patients than for black patients. Yep. And this algorithm served 200 million people in the United States. 
200 million. <laughs> oh my God, that is so, but see, that is so dangerous because when we think of computers, what do we think of? We think of accuracy. Yep. Yeah, and so I would think that we would have complete faith in the algorithm of a computer and we wouldn't be likely to, to argue, like you're not gonna argue with the computer, right? You're not gonna think the computer and all of its advanced ability to compute data you're not going to think that it's spitting out poor information. And I think this is a really great example to show how racial bias can be woven into so many different aspects of care, even ones that we wouldn't even think about. So Tenny, now that we've chatted about all of this and it feels like we've presented a rather grim and depressing picture of the barriers to healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> it is very grim and depressing because all of these barriers are leading to poor quality of care for so many Black, Indigenous, and people of color, and it is even killing them. So the huge question is, what can be done about this? Two words. Health literacy. I know it seems like we've said this over and over again, but this has to start with education and awareness. It's important for patients to know that as they understand more about their illness, they will get even more confident talking about it with their doctors and articulating exactly how they feel without guilt, fear, or shame. So educating yourself about your disease, no matter who you are, what your economic status is, what your color or race is, is a vital step to being heard. Another important thing is the education of doctors and those in the healthcare profession. Doctors need to become aware of their implicit bias and keep this in mind when treating the patient. So instead of seeing a patient as just a black patient, they should see the patient as Mrs. Johnson, mother of four and librarian. Another way to do this is to share their decision-making with their colleagues so as to get other opinions that break the bias. It is so important because sometimes it's impossible to see our own errors. And this is also why it highlights why we need diversity in the health workforce. Yes, Jenny, yes. While you were talking, I was just nodding my head. Yes, yes. <laughs> Definitely, I think the solution to this enormous, pervasive problem is going to come from making so many changes on so many different levels. And in addition to everything that you just said, I heard of another interesting suggestion that was from the book that I mentioned earlier, the book Just Medicine. A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Healthcare by Dana Matthews. So Ms. Matthews has a suggestion for the United States, and that is to tackle implicit bias by reforming the Title VI Civil Rights Act. So currently, this act prohibits explicit racism in medicine. So explicit racism is racism that is intentional towards the patient. 
Ms. Matthews' idea is to address discrimination that is due to implicit bias, which is what we've been talking about today, or unintentional racism. It wouldn't be about the intentions of something because oftentimes we have good intentions, but rather it would be about the actual impact on the patient's care. If lawsuits could be brought forward on the charge of implicit bias, it would push hospitals, providers, medical professionals, clinics, and other healthcare organizations to examine implicit bias, to admit implicit bias exists, to confront it, to have training about it, to teach medical professionals to be introspective about it, and to enact changes to prevent it from negatively influencing care. I think what's really nice throughout the book, Just Medicine, is that Ms. Matthews highlights research, which shows that bias is malleable. So that means that bias can change over time. And this is so powerful to know that the biases that we have, we are not stuck with. We can work with them. We can become aware of them. We can change them. And so there is hope. But we need to see change among individuals. We need to see change happen among the system itself and perhaps even among the law, like Ms. Matthews suggests in her book. The problem is systemic, so we need systemic change to address it. Oh, Amy, that is so powerful. I totally agree with everything you have just said. I truly believe that change has begun. And even though we still have so much to do, it will come. I think it's really important that we start listening to black and minority voices. We need to be taken seriously when we report our symptoms and pain to the doctor. We also need to be listened to when we share our stories of the discrimination we faced within the medical system. For true change to happen, we need to be listened to and we need to be believed. Well, Tenny, I want to thank you for so vulnerably sharing your story today about your interaction with that nurse. I know that stories of the experiences of Black, Indigenous, and people of color can be personal. And I know that they're never owed to the collective. So I hope that when people do choose to share, like you did today, that we can hold space for them, that we can open as a society to hearing these stories, really these truths about racism, which so many of us white people, myself included, have been unaware of. And I hope that as white people, as the racial group holding the institutional power, we can be open to educating ourselves more and combating these biases in our own spaces. There are these two amazing quotes that I really, really like. The first one is by Maya Angelou. And she says, quote, Prejudice is a burden that confuses the past, threatens the future, and renders the present inaccessible, end quote. That is so powerful. I know. 
And the next one is by Connell West. Quote, none of us alone can save the nation or the world, but each of us can make a positive difference if we commit ourselves to do so. End quotes. Those quotes are beautiful. They are true and they are really impactful. Tani, I'm so glad that we could have this conversation today, that we could connect and that we could talk about this topic and hopefully add just a drop of water to this ocean of change. Understanding the barriers to healthcare is such an important topic. And continuing to have these conversations is so important for change. So thank you, Amy, for doing this with me. Well, thank you for doing this with me. (laughs) We did have a lot of fun behind the scenes and it was nice. We were able to connect a lot on Zoom and see each other via video. And of course, the topic is really interesting. And I learned a lot both about the topic and working with you on this project. So before we end this episode, we just want to let you know again that Tenny's website is notdefinedbyendo.com and my website is in16years.com and there we've also put a list of all of the resources used for this episode and the links to black women and women of color who are with endometriosis who are doing incredible work who are advocating for endometriosis who are speaking about their experiences who are forming communities and who are bringing to light how widespread the racial bias is and how it affects treatment and quality of life. So again, we encourage you to follow their platforms and learn directly from their voices. Don't forget to share, rate, or subscribe to our podcasts. Amy's podcast is in 16 years of endometriosis, and you can find it on any streaming platform. Mine is not defined by endo, and you can also find it on any of your streaming platforms. Until next time, remember, you are not defined by endo. No, you are definitely not.